He's going from activist to, <laughs> back to super <laughs> activist. <laughs> ba, 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 ba. From dad to activist. <laughs> This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. So refills, counterfeits, and bogus bourbon. That is the unfortunate reality that we live in right now. But only until very recently have we seen distilleries start taking a more aggressive approach to combating some of these efforts. But there's one individual who has stepped up to be known as the person in the community when it comes down to hunting down scammers, and that's Adam Hers. Adam calls himself a whiskey watchdog, and he got into the habit of tracking down fakes years ago. But it's not just Adam. He works with a team of people, and they figure out where bottles, foils, and sales originate to bring justice to the bourbon world. Adam's been featured on Inside Edition, and he was also responsible for tracking down employees at Buffalo Trace who were involved in a massive counterfeit ring at one point. He gives us some insight into his process and even some red flags to look for if you're out there wanting to buy a highly desirable bottle on the secondary market. But here's also another fun fact about Adam. He's also the creator of the American Pie film series. So what bourbon would you pair with apple pie? With that, enjoy today's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Mark Benningfield, who writes me on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. This is a question I thought for above the char. I have quite a few bourbons that were bottled in the early to mid-1990s that would make them over 25 years. My question is, would these be considered dusties? How old would a bottle have to be before you considered them a dusty? I enjoy your work. Thanks, Mark. Well, Mark, you have asked a really good question that really is, it's its almost, I think like we needed a panel. This could be a topic for an entire episode of a bourbon roundtable. And I, I think everyone's going to have their own kind of like uh, philosophy on this. But I think you have to like separate the word uh, dusty from vintage. So vintage is, you know, I, I think a really good comparison is the automobile industry. And if you go to, in the in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, if you have a refurbished classic car, you can get like this vintage license plate. And the cutoff in, uh, in Kentucky to get one of these historic license plates is the car has to be at least 25 years old. So if, if we are going to grant like an official, you know, state document on what is considered vintage or historic, for something that we use, everybody uses, which is an automobile, I'm okay with saying that a, a, a Dusty can be 25 years old. That being said, I personally feel like, you know, the 90s, you know, I, I that was when I went to college, it's when I graduated high school. It just feels too close to be a Dusty. But if you think about it, those are uh, historic, iconic whiskeys. That really are dusty. So, in, the, in other words, Mark, your question has made me realize how old I am. Which, by the way, I'm 43. You know, I'm starting to eat my vegetables more. Soon, I'll be having tapioca pudding while watching Matlock. But 
this segment's not about my mortality. It's about what Mark wanted to know, which is, what is a Dusty? My go-to here on this is like, what would a state official consider a classic car or a vintage car? And I think when it comes to the life of something, uh, an automobile is far more difficult to keep than a bottle of whiskey. So I think that's a pretty good comparison. So I will go with 25 years. But that's going to do it for this week, folks. Be safe out there. And uh, if you want to be like Mark, hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Click the contact button and let me know your question. If I like it, I'll read it on the air. Until next week, cheers. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 a cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. And they're off for another Give 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 000 Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Today's episode is going to be a great one. We've got the whole team here today, and we are talking about something that has run rampant with inside of secondary markets, online trading forms, and that is looking for fake bottles of booze. Now, I know that we have, our guest today is probably what you would call uh, the superhero of the community. He's done a lot of digging into everything, and we'll, we'll definitely talk about more of that as well. But, you know, Ryan and Fred, before we get into this, I I want to kind of look at you all, too. I know, Fred, you've been around this uh, quite a lot longer than we have. The rise of just fraudulent bottles on the market, I mean, kind of talk about really when did you start seeing this become a huge issue? I look at it historically is is like anytime there is like a rise in, in bourbon, there there have been counterfeit bottles, and it's typically been in in moments of uh, you know bootleggers being a part of it. And when uh, when when we first saw this kind of like surfacing in, in like some of the Facebook forums, 
early on. I remember like it kind of hit around right around the same time as the, as Pappy Gate, you know. So it was kind of a lot of things kind of hit, you know, between like I want to say 2010 and 2016. And Scotch, there was always a little bit of a presence, but it really hadn't hit in in American whiskey. Uh, and wine, it certainly had been there for a long time. I always knew counterfeiting from what happened in, in China and like in Cognac's efforts to basically, I mean, in France, they have like an entire group of people who all they do is focus on counterfeiting fighting in, in China. I never in a million years thought I would see it in, in my own backyard. And so when we would see some of those things pop up and, you know, we had somebody on the show who admitted to it. It, it just kind of it blew my mind and it just kind of like it in a lot of ways it took all the fun out of of this uh of bourbon i kind of forgot we interviewed a, somebody that had fake bottles too but man that was i felt like so long ago yeah that's why i'm really nervous to discuss this because the last time we discussed discussed this or had an episode about it it ended in uh <laughs> in a lot of chaos for the next it, it, it for, ended with my uh my my blood vessels going <laughs> and uh, somebody wanted to jump across the table and punch us. No, I'm kidding. But uh, that was interesting. But yeah, it's wild because American whiskey or bourbon in general, I mean, no one cared about it for so long. And so distilleries and packagers, producers probably never thought twice about fraudulent bottles, you know. And so the packaging was not meant for that. So it was very, It's especially with Dusty's, gosh, it's probably really easy, but you know, now it's got a little bit more elaborate with laser codes and tubes and whatnot. But yeah, it just wasn't meant to be like this rare, uh, sought after secondary purchased value, whatever. But, uh, yeah, so it's yeah, kind of crazy. You know, when, when Julian Van Winkle was in the old Commonwealth facility and his roof was leaking and the warehouses were in the processes of, of, of like collapsing and he, he could barely afford, uh, you know, his bills and he was, you know, dipping the the Van Winkle family reserve in the in wax. I'm sure the last thing he was thinking about was counterfeiting in the mid 2000s. And but that's what happens with popularity. You know, it, it, it's just that's why I'm I'm so excited to have the guest we have today, Kennedy, because you call him a superhero, and I've talked to him before. I think that's an understatement. I think he's he's you know done a lot to quell this in in circles and to be quite frankly with you that a lot of times the distilleries just ignore it and this one guy has been the greatest defense against counterfeiting in american whiskey yeah we'll, we'll get into that we'll figure out how he has the time to do it all as well because i know there's a, a ton of research that goes into it so to date on the show we have adam hers he is a writer and producer as well as what we call a whiskey activist so adam welcome to the show thanks for having me yeah, awesome. So before we kind of get into it and, you know, what you're doing and sort of your, you know, your role out in L.A., kind of talk us a little bit about how you just got into bourbon in general. Well, believe it or not, I started in scotch. Actually, I started in tequila. And, you know, you drink a lot of tequila and people say, oh, if you like tequila, you really should try this and that and the other. And I really started with single malts. And then branched out into any any brown liquor and so you know bourbon comes along with that and you just kind of just had a knack for it i mean i don't you know it's it tastes good and you drink it and it makes you feel nice i mean what what else do you need 
<laughs> so <laughs> simple. It gets the job done. Yeah. And what about what time did you like year wise? Did you really kind of start getting into brown spirits? Yeah. So 2006 is really when I started to go hardcore. And we started a little club here in Los Angeles. It's the Los Angeles Whiskey Society, which started Malls, as a group. right? Laws, yeah. It was just started as a group of 10 friends and we built a website and that sort of got some traction after a while and um, kind of became its own thing. So we have a lot of fun. We still do it. So you were around when there was still plenty of Dusty sitting on the shelf and you could go and just try to find what you wanted. Kind of talk about some of your old hunting days. Oh my God, we did so much. The craziest thing is all the stuff I left on the shelf because it was everywhere. I mean, we all, you know, remember the days where you'd walk into a store and, oh gosh, they got a ton of BTAC and Pappy and whatever. Well, that's easy to get. Like, what's where's the interesting stuff? You know, some of my favorite finds, like, I mean, just to pick a random one, I was in Aspen and there is a uh, private club there. I forget the name of it, but people will know. On the bar, they've just got some bottles that instantly you go, I, that's been on that bar for like 20 years. And one of them was uh, an A.H. Hirsch 20-year. And this would have been, I don't know, this was probably seven or eight years ago. So not that long ago. But I like that one because they were like, oh, man, we've, we've got these extras in the back. Do you want them? And they pulled out all these other old wax Hirsches that, you know, I made a deal for. And uh, I still got a few. That's the way to do it. I came up with, so there's this group of single malt scotch drinkers called Plowed, and they have this thing called fofing, which is their term for dusty hunting. And so we always used to go fofing. Bar fofs are the best, or they used to be the best. You can't really do them anymore. But people would have all this what old is, stock. What, what does fofing stand mean? For? Yeah, yeah. It started, so they have this yearly meeting in Vegas and tip each other off on like, oh, there's this, there's this store, you know, wherever off the strip, you know, they've got whatever, go, go buy it. And so there was a friend of a friend visiting one year, F-O-A-F, that went and cleared the shelf before anybody else could get there. And so it became a thing like to go, you, you try and fof the other guy. It sort of doesn't make sense, but I don't know. It's the term that we, we, we still use here sort of in our group. So shelf clearing has been around for a while then? Been around for a while. I mean, I used to, when I was going out, 07, 08, 09, I was going really strong any family vacation we took, you know, the wife knows there's no such thing as passing by a liquor store, you know? Uh, so now there is, but man, it used to just be when you could find stuff. I mean, it was still, you, you didn't find a lot, but when you did, it was totally worth it. Now people get all excited because they got Blanton's or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, there's no truer words that's ever been spoken right there. I haven't been hunting in so long, but you do, there is something magical about it when you just find something and you're like, it's like an endorphin rush, you know, it's like, totally. oh, and then, I and found the, it. The, the, it's like finding it was half the fun, you know? I mean, for me, it always was, you know, rarely you'd find these treasure troves. There's some story better that I forgot. It. Yeah. Well, yeah, obviously you get to drink it, but I don't know. I, I was fortunate. So I'm, so as being a writer, you get to kind of make your own. I mean, I'm either intensely working on something or intensely not working. So I could take entire days and I would just cordon off a grid of like Los Angeles County and hit every store in it. That's a pretty good patch. So I guess you could, you made a few rounds and that works out pretty well. Yeah, it was, I still have a lot of stuff from them. So it was, it was fun. 
At this point, I think the whole country's cleared. So anybody that plans on traveling, you can pass by those liquor stores. I don't really think you're gonna you're gonna find anything. Blantons. But yeah, or if you find some Blantons. Of course, everybody needs a bottle of Blantons or six or whatever. I disagree. I still find gyms in these old in these stores. I still look. Tell me in fact, you have you found a dusty in the past year? Um what well, well, well how would how do we define dusty? I guess COVID, how would we define COVID the past stuff. year? Yeah, how would we find yeah. define the past year? Say two years. Yeah. Ago. So I found uh, one of the old an old bottle of uh, old Forster. Yeah, so I mean probably early 2000s, yeah. late 90s, you know. So I mean it's not anything that I was going to be like, "Oh my god, I got it." But it was, you know, good and it, it also it's uh it was it, like Ryan was saying, it's part of the haunt and like why Adam's a part of this whole culture. It's like, oh, my God, I just found a bottle. And let uh, let me remind you that I found a bottle of uh, Pursuit United in a rando Atlanta store. So we appreciate the That's support. the ultimate treasure hunt. <laughs> <laughs> so also, you know, you had mentioned that you're a writer. So we have to kind of talk about this, too, because you're also the creator of the American Pie series, the basically the cult classic that has been a staple for pretty much everybody that's been in our generation that grew up watching it. Kind of talk to us just a little bit about the the history coming up with the idea Stifler's mom, all that sort of stuff. Let's see. Well, it started as a, and first of all, thank you for uh, for the kind words about the filth I've created. I appreciate <laughs> it. So I'm a product of the 80s, and I sort of grew up on John Hughes and, 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 and Porky's and these sort of TNA party movies is what we used to kind of joke about. And when I was in college... I was a film studies major at the University of Michigan, and all you do is write papers. Like they don't let you, they don't let you push the buttons and go make movies. Or they didn't when I was there. They do now. But anyway, as a sort of rebellion against that, I started writing papers on teenage sex comedies, um, like analyzing, you know, analyzing them the way you would analyze Citizen Kane, and it kind of became a joke. Like what happened to those movies? And so anyway, that was the impetus for American Pie. It was like let's just bring back that kind of comedy because th- this was the 90s and it hadn't been done that the teenage the, the the fact that teenagers went to movies had been like forgotten strangely enough and so i just sort of took all the favorite things i liked about all those movies and tried to make my own version of it and it worked so now that you're an adult in the bourbon business what bourbon would you pair with an apple pie <laughs> <laughs> oh man I don't know. Am I am I am I using the bourbon the way we use the apple pie, or am I saying? Hey, listen, this is your show. Uh, This is your show, brother. That's a that's a narrow opening. (laughs) (laughs) Depends on how big that Glen Karen is. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna comment, but there there was a very easy follow up to that. Uh, Blanton's probably probably Blanton's. I mean, I, I I don't know. You know, it's tough to stuff. I mean, if you're really, pairing whiskey with food is tough. I used to, when I first got into whiskey, we would do paired dinners and it's tricky because, you know, it kind of, it's, it's hot bottom line. And it's not like wine where you can just gulp glasses of it with a, a steak or whatever. Whiskey pairing is tough, but uh, sure. I digress. I digress. So yeah, American Pie, I'm happy to talk about it, but I, I was 25. I sold 
I had studied film in college. I, I came out to Los Angeles, worked as a production assistant, and that was actually the very first script I wrote, um, or at least made it to the end of. Luckily, sold it. It was really weird. For a few years, I had no idea what was going on because you're sort of granted this instant expertise in Hollywood once you sell a script. And so I got all sorts of great gigs and, and payments and uh, was basically paid to learn how to become a screenwriter. So I guess it worked out in your favor then. Yeah, it totally it totally has been has been interesting. I never know how to I never really have figured out how to talk about it. You know, the one question people always ask me, I'll just get to it is, uh, you know, did you fuck a pie? Uh, and the stock answer to that is, I don't know. I didn't just come up with that on my own. But I mean, no. But I learned the hard way. People don't want to hear that I made it up. So yeah, I, I, I dozens of them. Dozens of them. I, I, I love it. I, I'd I love to get in the mind of this and, and kind of figure out where all the dirt comes from. Because I mean, it, if you just think about it, like there's just so many iconic things that came out of that movie uh, that we still, I mean, anytime it ever says the word band camp, what's the one thing that comes to your mind? Yep, I mean, flute. right. Yeah, the flute. It's the one thing that comes to mind. I mean, it's just it's just one of those things that even today, you know, gosh, what, 20 something years later, this is still what we talk about, what we think about. And you see the you see the uh, actors and actresses from that. And that's all you see is the scenes that uh, are like burned in our head. I can't think of the guy's name, but he he's in Shit's Creek. I still think about like how he used to just walk in on his son in the middle of it while he was about to get busy. Yeah. And it's just like how awkward that is. (laughs) It just, it's just a funny, it's just so good. You, you, you captured the, a real beautiful piece of Americana. Uh, Of course, you've continued to have a great career and, and what you're doing now, I think is just exceptional. I mean, it's kind of like a philanthropy in some ways to, uh, to the bourbon business. Yeah. I kind of want to get in that too. So kind of talk about how you, saw a need in the market that we needed a, somebody out there that started one to investigate all these bourbon frauds that were happening. It was just happenstance. What happened with, with laws with our, our little LA club here is we started sort of finding various old bottles and, and trying to figure out how to, like everybody, when was this bottled? What's the story here? What's going on? And, and this was you know, in the in 2006 to 2010, there just wasn't a lot of whiskey information online. And so we started doing a lot of original research. And uh, what that led to was just knowing, realizing, hey, I think we know a lot of sort of privileged information. Maybe that's not the right word, but just stuff that wasn't well known. And so, gosh, I think it started, it really took off in maybe 2012 when, when Bonham's New York had listed a uh, a bottle of single malt scotch for sale as their centerpiece bottle. And they had dated it circa 1900. And this is so obvious now, but, but uh, you look at the photo and, and everybody kind of knows now there's this glass embossing that says federal law forbids sale or reuse of this bottle, blah, 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 blah. That started in 1934, ran through 1965. And it's just, as soon as we saw that, it was like, holy shit, if like these big auctioneers don't know what they're doing, you know, what the heck's the going on here? Has, they don't stand a chance. Yeah, yeah. And so that was, I think, sort of the first big, big thing I did. And after that, it just sort of, it just sort of takes care of itself. I, I have trouble keeping my mouth shut sometimes, I, I think is the problem. And like I said, I have, sometimes I have too much time on my hands and, and you know, that's when people got to watch out, I guess. 
but I mean, I guess that that kind of goes back into it is is what makes you want to do it? Like what drives you to be that person that I think the community really does look up to you. I mean, for anybody that doesn't know, Adam posts in a bunch of different Facebook groups when something does come out and kind of shed some light on the whole scenario with the backgrounds, really the story of how it all sort of came to be. And uh, he doesn't do this because he gets paid by the mods or anything. I mean, I think there is, there's something that's good natured about you that you, you like to do this sort of thing. Yeah, I don't have a good answer. I do it just because I feel driven sometimes and it, and it pisses me off. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes it's just fun. Like there's a detective work to a lot of it that can really be fun and rewarding, especially, you know, one way that I, so I've had this sort of team that I work with of people and we're always operating on a hypothesis with, with a percentage confidence. Okay. You say right now we're, we're about 80% sure that so-and-so is faking and this is the methodology and whatever. And eventually you find some piece of evidence that that verifies it. And you go, holy shit, we were actually right. And it's just fun because you, you always have to operate giving people the benefit of the doubt. And what sucks is when, you know, somebody's just been a complete dirtbag and you, it changes, you know, I, I, a lot of times, I mean, gosh, I, I was going to say a lot of time I just end up, there's been a few times where I'm just so pissed. I mean, you, you know, you guys did an interview you were saying you did an interview a while ago, and I, I remember that one where you had a person on who had been making fakes in the community, and you just want to reach out and, and smack these people with the, the fakes they made. We, we were Fred there. Fred tried to. Yeah, Fred, Fred tried, tried to. to. It, was, it got really awkward really quick. So it, we, we don't want to bring up any bad memories. We're, we're all scarred from that right now. <laughs> I, I, I think I'm, I'm ready. I'm okay. I'm, I think I'm, I've moved on, but I still... You know, Adam, I still regret how I handled that. I was, it was, I was outside of my, I was not professional in it. And and looking back, I, I have very few regrets in my career, but that's one of them. Nah, thankfully, I mean, we're all people. Thankfully, on, Kenny man. and Ryan, you know, were there. Gotta be the they, comedic relief or something. The hardest, I mean, the hardest thing for me is, is when I sort of publish these reports, is pulling the emotion out of it and just presenting the facts because all I want to do as, as like a urban enthusiast and say, this piece of shit is screwing it up for all of us. But instead, you just, you give them the facts. I also, because I, you know, I have to, I have to watch what I say for a whole bunch of reasons. Yeah, I know. Your, your wife went from having to make you stop at every liquor store to now having to worry about getting a knock on the door. I, you know, we don't worry about that. I mean, I, there, there have been times where you realize, oh, crap, like this person is a, like a real criminal. I don't know. There was a guy that I was working on a, a couple years ago now and talking to him. It's like, oh, this this guy defrauded his own uncle for three quarters of a million dollars is what we discovered. And as soon as I hit that, it was just like, you know what? Like, this is out of my league. Like, this is FBI stuff. Like, this, it's not fun anymore when you, you know, it's, it's not, it, 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 I, fun is the wrong word. But when you're, there's a lot of times it's these suburban dads that are counterfeiting, strangely enough. Like you've got sort of the pros and then the guys that sort of fall into it to make a car payment or whatever. And, you know, it's not like you, it's, I was going to say you can't blame them. Obviously you can blame them, but you can understand. I'm never worried about, you know, the, they're just people that made bad mistakes. But, but when I run into the real criminals, it's just like, yeah, I, I want nothing to do with that. I mean, there's plenty of stuff I don't publish. 
So I guess talk to a, a little bit about some of your, your process and methodology without kind of giving anything that's proprietary or anything that would be like, oh, well, I'm not going to go do that now. But how do you start gathering evidence and then presenting the facts or actually reaching out to people and trying to make that first contact and what usually happens? So, I mean, there's two sort of sides to this whole thing. There's there's sort of actually identifying like fakes themselves, right? Like just physical evidence. And then there's like the human side of it where you're sort of playing detective Columbo personality games. Um, it's like poker where in a way that finding the fakes and all the sort of physical evidence is the easy part. And then it's how do we approach this person? How do we talk to them? I always start from a presumption of innocence. I go in and I say, usually they've heard something. Somebody's whispered something on some forum somewhere. Somebody's complaining. And I say, hey, I'm here to help you clear your name. Which, by the way, is exactly what ends up happening sometimes. So, and you, you usually can quickly tell whether somebody's being defensive unnecessarily or sometimes people are just scared and they don't want to talk. But before then, though, like, how are you how are you finding some of the evidence? Is it usually I mean, are you keeping like a database of, of Pappy Van Winkle bottles that are sold on eBay or is it just something that just comes to the community and, and you're there to kind of be the, the middle person? So the Pappy Van Winkle thing, yes, there's a database, but obviously it can't have every empty ever sold. So there's tons that's not going to be on it. Usually it's probably 50-50 where sometimes I see something, it might even be more than 50% of the time I get a tip. Sometimes it's somebody has done the legwork and says, I'm pretty sure this bottle somebody's selling in right, you know, in, in wherever they're selling it, I think this is the empty bottle that was sold three weeks ago on eBay. And they'll send it to me and I'll and I'll start sort of a deep dive. You want to talk about how to like how to spot fakes? Sure. Let's, let's give some people some, some ideas if, if, cause I think, you know, it, it's, it's not that we're trying to tell people how to make better fakes cause we know how to spot them, but I think it's also helping the consumers out there that are trying, I mean, don't be wrong. We're all trying to find stuff and get our hands on stuff and you gotta, you have to know what to look for. You gotta kind of know those telltale signs. So yes, kind of give us some idea of what you or immediate red flags. Sure. So like you said, I do have to be slightly coy because pretty much every time I do an interview or say something that gets printed somewhere, it inspires a new faker. So we we have to sort of bridge, walk the tightrope between vigilance and inspiring too many new criminals. So with sort of spotting fakes, one thing I like to say is it's sort of, it's it's sometimes, it's an easier question to answer by starting to talk about what not to look for. I get tons and tons of people contacting me or, or flagging me in some post somewhere saying, hey, you look at this bottle. This is obviously fake. It's got a smeared laser code. Or look at the label. It's wrinkled. Or there's double foil is a common one, right? And, and the double foil one's a good example because you got to think about these mass production bottling lines. Sooner or later, they're going to stick two foils onto a bottle by mistake. But why would a faker ever do that? You know, nobody that's spending time making fakes is going to perfectly replicate a bottle but not be able to do a laser code that isn't smeared or they're going to, you know. So so, so, sort of the first way to approach it is to th think like a faker is you look at a bottle and you say, 
are these sort of signs on it that make me concerned? If I was faking this, would I not be able to get rid of that? I mean, it's really as simple as that, you know? Laser codes is always a big thing. Everybody's worried about laser codes. And if you think about it, the laser coder is just a little gizmo that sits next to a conveyor belt. The bottles pass by it and it goes, codes them. Sometimes it's ink, sometimes it's etching. But those things can malfunction. The bottle can be at a weird angle. So you sometimes get those bottles where it looks like it's like alien writing, the laser code. I've seen them. I I always thought it was like, well, you could tell that it just kind of like whips by it real quick, but sometimes it yeah it looks either like hieroglyphics or Arabic yeah. or something like that. Yeah, or maybe the, who knows like how you know what actually happened there. But again, if you're faking, you're not going to make that mistake. So then on the flip side of that, yes, most in the United States, most of the fakes we see, if not all of them, are refills. An old bottle is used, simply refilled and resealed. Is like completely contradict what I just said. Yeah, like stains on a bottle. Sure, like you know, you, you we've all poured plenty of bottles of whiskey. You get the label stained, and you see those drips that run down it from the lip of the bottle vertically down the label. That's an obvious. It's not a tip off, but it's a it's a red flag. And you just sort of you have to really know what am I supposed to see. And the great thing, Google's your friend. You know, any any bottle that that you're suspicious about, there's going to be. Uh, hundreds of pictures of what it's supposed to look like on Google. And it's really just as basic as as comparing. I mean, when you look at the the refills, is one of the biggest problems we see today is just like just plain old clear PVC. Because I know that you found people that are just like refilling bottles of Rock Hill Farms. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus Magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. When you look at the, the refills, is one of the biggest problems we see today is just like just plain old clear PVC because I know that you've found people that are just like refilling bottles of Rock Hill Farms. 
or and yeah even i think what was like four roses small match limited edition like they didn't have special parafilm or any or special film it was just plastic seals yeah so this is one of the things i don't like to talk about but yet it's so apparently it, it's so it's so damn obvious like this stuff is filled with stuff that that you can buy you know it's cheap as it's just cheap and it comes in giant packs and yeah of, of course anybody can do it it's ridiculous how easy it is as a matter of fact, last time I said this, I believe the gentleman that we were alluding to earlier, I found his first purchase of a Four Roses bottle the, a couple of days after I did a, an interview saying these clear cellophane bottles are the easiest to fake. Well, there you go. But yeah, wax, obviously. The, the nice thing about wax is it's, it's hard to do well, and fakers tend to be stupid and impatient. And That's one way to put it. We'll take it. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> so what's easier to fake, an older bottle or a newer one? Or or what's more obvious to tell that's fake? I, guess. I mean, the, the thing to think, look at it this way is, is in Europe, there are like whole cloth fakes where, especially with scotch, where somebody is from the ground up built something, right? They've made the labels, they've blah, blah, blah. Here we're dealing with refills. So it all comes down to the, the, the seal. It's not sophisticated. It's just, I don't know, look at all the bottles sitting behind Fred there. I mean, what would be easiest to to reseal? I mean, it's it's I don't want to say one's easier than the other, but I mean, if all you need is is some plastic and a heat gun, come on. Wax is messy. You gotta you gotta know how it's supposed to look. You gotta get the temperature right. There's a there's a whole lot of stuff that goes into it. Foiled bottles are the you know, the 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 really pro-level stuff. Pappy Van Winkle, we see a lot of fakes of. But it's a totally different level because these guys have professional equipment. And as best as we can tell, they're just stealing foils or or bribing somebody to get the real the real deal. And if you have that, it's 30 seconds a bottle. I mean, it's it's just simple. It's gonna take you longer to use the plastic stuff. Yeah, I, w- I want to kind of touch on that one in, in a minute, but I, just to kind of keep this storyline going. So after you you collect the data and you reach out to them and you say, well, we're going to try to help prove your innocence. Mm. How long does it take them to, I mean, oddly enough, I'm guessing most times you you kind of catch somebody flat footed. How, like, how often do they dig themselves into a hole that they just end up blocking you? Always. <laughs> uh Literally always. (laughs) Anybody that's guilty will always dig themselves into a hole. They all think they're really smart and they have these wonderful excuses that they've, you know, you can tell they've they've been doing this for a while. So at some point they've been worried about getting caught and they've got their excuses ready to go and now they're ready to deploy them. But it's really like watching. I mean, I'll tell you exactly what it's like is I have a eight-year-old and a 12-year-old and I've been teaching them poker. And to watch them bluff you're like, oh, that's um, you're so, you're so adorable. Bad. You're terrible. You're terrible <laughs> at this game. <laughs> that's so cute. And <laughs> and these 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 kind of these counterfeiters are all the same. Where you're like, oh, it's that it's that cute excuse again. Like, and and I'm usually Facebook messaging with them because I want it all written down. I don't want any phone calls where there can be he said she said. And I'll let them dig their hole, and then you just have to say, well, you said this above. But then you said this. They haven't thought their stories through. It's just it's just like a terrible bluff. And it's embarrassing to watch. It was 
years ago, like I, I sort of read, I don't know, the stuff that they train police with on like how to interrogate people. And so it was fun the first few times, but now it's just like disheartening. Or that you got, you've gotten good at it. It's one or the other. Have you ever thought about like involving, you know, officials in, in this sort of thing? Um, yes. You know, it's delicate because, well, because we're dealing with the gray market in most of America. But I have worked, I mean, in Arizona, there was a, a, a very large collection stolen that I helped recover. We set up a sting there with the local police. There were like arrests and SWAT teams and, and it was kind of crazy. I'll probably issue a report on that soon. Sounds like a movie theme right there. I'd actually right? start writing down. Yeah. Be the next Netflix documentary. But that's, you know, that's pretty rare. The only time I usually talk to police is there There are people on my team that are in law enforcement that can, uh, what's the word I want to use, provide privileged information. And the other thing is, you know, there's a lot of cops that are <laughs> buying, selling, and trading whiskey. So, you know, they're like the rest of us. Oh, yeah, that's Do true. they take they... you seriously? They're like, like, okay, this is something we should pursue. Is it like worth their time? Or, or are they just um, like, ah, just I, deal with it yourself? I have never, ever spoken to law enforcement about fakers. I've spoken to, you know, Buffalo Trace has their private investigators that sometimes I talk to, but how do I put this? Kentucky has its own ways of operating, and I do not think a lot will be done there about counterfeiting for reasons I, I really couldn't comment on. All right, well, we'll get to that in a minute. Now, I think one thing that we had also kind of alluded to there a second ago is that you had also helped uncover a pretty large counterfeit ring that was dealing with refilled bottles of Pappy Van Winkle that pointed back to an employee that was working at Buffalo Trace that had access to the foils. Kind of talk about that story a little bit, because I think that was one that really shed a light on how bad this has gotten, that just people inside the walls there are now contributing to this more and more. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And stop me if I dive too deep here. But so it started with sort of us identify, somebody identified a refill or two on social media and we figured out who had sold it. And, and there are people that flip empty bottles. There are a few people on eBay that, that, that more or less make a pretty good side hustle off of, of flipping empties. I ended up sort of talking with one of those people. And uh, some information from that led us to a name. As soon as I, as soon as this person said, "Well, you know, there's this there's this guy at Buffalo Trace that that buys empties from me," but but he just uh, there was some weird excuse like he sends them to China where they're worth a lot more or something weird. Like, yeah, of course the right like empty bottles are worth a lot more wherever the hell they like. No, that's not. Uh, it made no sense. But the name he mentioned was a name that I had heard pop up here and there for a few years, people were sort of, there were rumors about this person. And so as soon as I heard that, it was like, oh, okay. Uh, well, now I got to call that guy. And I introduced myself. I think I started over text. I send him a long text. And usually when I'm talking to anybody that, you know, I, I call it an interview. I just want to talk to you. I just have some questions. I'm not saying you did anything and let's clear your name if, if people are accusing you. And I try to explain who I am without sounding like a total jackass because it's like, I'm a whiskey watchdog. Or I'm a whiskey 
I, like it just it's embarrassing so see there is you figured out your title right there we should have called you that from the beginning it was whiskey watchdog whiskey watchdog <laughs> yeah. yeah that's usually like the term i i use i'll say i'm sort of a whiskey watchdog for lack of a less silly term is sort of the phrase i'll say a lot so he says yeah sure give me a call i'll talk to you and instantly i had two phone calls over them and the first phone call i just let him bullshit the whole time you want to hear the stories these people have to say because there's always kernels of truth in them that will you know, lead you to more good stuff. And the second phone call was just a disaster because I said, look, man, I know you've been, you haven't been truthful with me and, and here's how I know. And he actually broke down. Like it was, I think he was out to dinner with his wife or something. And if I'm re- recalling right, I, in my head, he was stepped outside a restaurant, but I might have that wrong, but he was just, man, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lose my job. I'm gonna, it's over for me. And um, he did. He quit before they could fire him, is my understanding. Yeah, I don't know. I'm digressing here. Focus me. What do you want to know? Well, I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting how you, well, A, you make a grown man cry. But when you, when you go this deep and you find out about all this stuff, and you, you had this report, did you hand it over to Buffalo Trace and say, hey, ah, thank you. Yes. The, yeah. So I did contact them in advance of that saying, I think that was probably the start of my relationship with them, saying, hey, look, we've discovered one of your employees selling fakes. Like, he's really heavily involved. What do you want to do? Because I'm not out to, like, embarrass them or anything like that. The opposite would really be ideal, where everybody cooperates, meaning collectors and the distillers. And I had a very long call with an executive there. And I don't want to say too much, because I, I think I think they could be doing a lot more then, they could be doing a lot more now. But I think from their point of view, they sort of don't need to be, or it's not their responsibility. We can talk about that more in a minute. But anyways, they uh, I, with, with that incident, it came down to, hey, can you hold off for a few days before publishing this because they wanted to do their own internal stuff. I'd already spent so much time on it, I actually had to go shoot a TV show. Um, and I was like, guys, I, I got to get on a plane tomorrow. I'm publishing it. I'm sorry. I'm done. You know, and then I, I vanished from bourbon for six months or whatever. That's how that played out. But I still talk to them every now and then. It's an odd relationship, to say the least. When you did talk to Sazerac, did they feel like slightly embarrassed that this was happening, that you had to figure it out? Or did they say like, well, thanks for bringing this. Like, we're going to take immediate action and and we're going to try to change some things internally, kind of what was the vibe you got out of that? Cautious is the vibe. I, I'm speaking to their their chief legal officer and, and chief compliance officer, you know? So, and her job is to protect the company and uh, to, you know, watch what is said, I guess. Not in like a nefarious way. Like, I, I get it, that's her job. The impression I get is that they know something should be done and could be done. And I am occasionally told, hey, we're getting ready to implement something. And that happens enough that either they've implemented something and nobody knows about it and it's useful to nobody, or they haven't. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's a lot of open-ended sort of, we'll get there, but we're not there kind of thing yet. Yeah. Do you think it's their responsibility? Look, I think it's really easy to 
to not seal your product up with something that anybody can buy and do themselves. It's not that much more expensive to get custom wrap made or whatever. So, you know, do they have a responsibility? I I think given where, where bourbon is now, yeah, I think they do. Why wouldn't they? Like, don't they want to protect the integrity of their own products, you know? And meanwhile, to talk about, you know, Sazerac, Buffalo Trace, what was it, four or five years ago, Fred, you'll know. But when they did that announcement, we've spent half a million dollars. They said, we spent half a million dollars to fight counterfeits. And the grand net result of that was they busted one faker with two bottles in New York worth $1,500. And it's funny, the first time I talked to him, I said, guys, I'm only going to charge you $25,000 a fake. <laughs> so, you know, they, they just brilliant. paid a quarter million dollars to find two fakes. But the truth of it is, is, well, I shouldn't say the truth of it. My suspicion is I don't really think they spent half a million bucks to try and stop counterfeiting. I think a lot of that money went to lobbying to <sighs> strengthen the whiskey, the bourbon distribution structure versus eliminating secondary. I mean, they, they, they stated, we want to shut down the secondary markets. Basically, we want to stop collecting. Like we want... Yeah, we, I mean, a bourbon and beyond on, on the stage there, we have that recorder for Bourbon Pursuit. You know, the yes. Van told me that they hired lawyers and worked with, with, with Facebook. And I'm looking at, and I mean, that is... And, and, you know, I, I look I look at the Van Winkles very differently than I do Sazerac. I, I, I mean, I know a lot of people will disagree with me on that, but I continue to see like the story of what Pappy is. And I think of like Julian and his company nearly folding and the man himself, Pappy Van Winkle, and how important he was to the early phase of 20th century uh, bourbon. But I think of them very differently. I think they have issues with pricing and they need to fix that, but... They did tell us they did that, and that is true. And I'm looking at the press release right now. Kenny, you want me to read you a quote from Mark Brown in it? Let's go ahead. Just put a quote out there for us. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you a quote from Mark Brown. This is from Mark Brown from the press release from 2017. Sadly, the Van Winkle Bourbons are the latest victim of counterfeiting, where innocent consumers are duped. Avoid buying any bourbon or whiskey, especially the highly sought-after ones from anyone in the secondary market which includes online private sellers or in the social media groups that claim to offer genuine products. The only legal and reputable source you should be buying from is a licensed retailer, end quote. And I think Adam even proved that you can't even buy it from a licensed retailer <laughs> when he was on yeah. the Inside Edition story and they found fake bottles of VH Taylor for grain. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, with the in some states, you know, retailers are allowed to charge whatever they want. And so, you know, is that more incentive? It seems like it's more incentive for them to do fakes. And, you know, in states that have vintage laws as well, you know, it's like bars and restaurants can kind of go down that road as well. Oh, I, it's happening. I mean, I saw two or three places in Vegas that I was like, there ain't no way in hell these fuckers got allocations for Pappy. And they had bottles right there. And it was there's definitely not the kind of place that would have them. And even, you know, even Preston Van Winkle has stated, you know, that they've been out and they've ordered what looked like Pappy. They bought it and tasted it like, this is not Pappy. And then the person could be like, yeah, it is. We got it. And he's like, he's like, I'm Preston Van Winkle. That's not Pappy. You know, so. <laughs> I wish I could, you know, I wish I could throw down a name like that and go to a yeah. bar and be like, <laughs> uh, uh, uh. 
Look at my credit uh, card. <laughs> but I mean, I the the refills in the restaurant scene is probably awful. Right. And that's that's a whole nother ball of wax, Adam. Yeah, no, I see. Yeah, we'll wait. Part two. Yeah, we'll do that in a part two sometime. Uh, dear God. It's uh yeah, it's frightening. I don't know. It is. It is. But you know, Adam, I do want to say this was awesome to have you kind of come on the show and and give us some of the insight into into what you do. And uh, I'm glad we kind of let, led to that at the end because I also wanted to just give people an, an idea of if you want to go see some more of Adam, there was a great story on Inside Edition where he had helped uncover some fakes of E.H. Taylor foregrain and all this other kind of stuff too. And he was definitely a highlight on there that also shed some more light on, on bourbon and, and really what you do. So before we kind of end it, I do want to say thank you so much, not for just being on the show, but for everything that you do for the bourbon community. Like I said, you're a community superhero when it comes down to this. And and thank God you got enough time because everybody waits on the edge of their seat. Once one of those Facebook groups and people start throwing pitchforks and it's like, okay, hold on, let Adam do his work. And then we'll all come back and, and have a unruly discussion after that. But it is definitely one of those things that, you know, you you definitely have a way of making sure that you you take a little bit of the emotion out of it, but you present everything as it is and you let people sort of decide for themselves. And, and it, like I said, it's just great from a community standpoint, there's somebody there to, to kind of take on that role, knowing that the larger distillers that are really the ones to probably be pointing the finger at are, are not doing this. So again, thank you so much for doing that. Well, thank you for having me. And then again, thank you for the kind words. I mean, by the way, anybody... <laughs> Anybody listening to this, if you want to take the reins, like, please, this is, is <laughs> like, I'm getting tired of it. You know, it's a lot of work. Yeah, you got to keep thank your own legal you, counsel, you. don't you? I, I actually do, yes. Uh, yeah, I have to see? vet everything I say. And that's one of the reasons that my posts are sometimes sterile, sort of dry. <laughs> <laughs> well, one day we're going to throw some of that American pie humor into the post and really throw people for a loop. Oh, I wish I could. Yeah. <laughs> Well, good job. So Adam, again, thank you so much for doing that. I'm not going to tell you how to get in touch with Adam, but it's not hard to do it if you're on Facebook and you're on a few of the forums. There's some of the open ones where he can post and you'll be able to see really what's happening inside of that world. But the first rule of Fight Club is we're not going to talk about where you find those groups. So you're on your own for that one. Thanks. By the way, I do have a Facebook page. You can just Google me. I oh, there you Facebook go. Facebook page you... for all this. So there you go. Google Adam and you can find him on Facebook. Cool. Well, you can also Google us. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, all that sort of stuff. So make sure you follow Bourbon Pursuit. Also, make sure you follow our good buddy, our good buddy, our good buddy, our good buddy, <laughs> Fred Minnick over here on all his YouTube channels and his social channels like that as well. But with that, cheers, everybody. And we'll see you all next week. <laughs>